Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode six of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-hosts Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons, a weekly look at the 2021 Red Sox season and all that surrounds it and the world of Major League Baseball. And it's been quite a week, Steve, um, a, a road trip that began last week in Houston and then ended late Sunday night in New York, started out poorly and then took a hairpin turn in game four in Houston and carried into New York with a sweep, um, kind of the, the vagaries of, of a baseball season encapsulated in one week, three losses followed by four wins and a four and three road trip against two pretty good teams. Yeah. And, you know, we talked last week about how this 17 game stretch in 17 days was going to be a pretty good test uh, this far into the season based on who they were playing. You know, they're finally going to start playing some decent teams. Um, And uh, obviously they they took it on the chin a little bit in Houston, but then turned around with New York. And I don't know, New York is a team that's so streaky. I'm, I'm just not willing to say that they are really a pretty good team right now. They have pitching issues. Uh, they're a one-dimensional team, and they showed that uh, against the Red Sox in that in that series. But it was sweet to go into New York and and uh, and sweep them like that because it, that just hasn't been happening. They have not played well in New York at all. That is a giant understatement. I mean, before the start of this recent series, the Red Sox had lost eleven games in a row in Yankee Stadium over the last couple of years, and I think the total was something like 15 out of 17 or 16 out of 18. The Yankees had completely manhandled them in 2019 and 2020. A lot of ugly, one-sided scores, all of them in the favor of the Yankees. And, you know, to go in and even if the Yankees are struggling a little bit and they caught them at the right time, um, still to go in and win three games in Yankee Stadium, that was the first three-game sweep for a Red Sox team in almost exactly a decade, really almost to the day. Uh, the, 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 it was uh, 10 years ago this past Monday that the Red Sox last did that. So that tells you over the stretch of 10 years how hard it is, no matter how good each team is in a given year, to go in and win, and win three in a row from the Yankees on their home field. Yeah, and it's, I mean you can point at it and say, look, you're going into Yankee stadium. You're going into New York city. I don't care if you're playing the Bronx sixth grade little league team. It's pretty tough to go in there and, and, and sweep three from a team like the Yankees given the history, because it is, I mean, I don't care what the players say today. They still understand the rivalry. They still uh, get up a little bit more uh, to play in Yankee stadium and to play against the Yankees and to go in there and do what they did there is pretty impressive uh, considering they had just come off of a pretty bad series. You know, they, they got beat up a little bit and they come into, into Yankee Stadium and, and completely turn it around. So uh, to me, that's, that's, that's an excellent sign for a, a team that at least shows some fortitude anyway. Yeah, I, I thought that same thing, that given how the road trip started with three losses in Houston and virtually no offense to speak of, they scored four runs in those first three games against the Astros. And then avoided the sweep by winning that getaway game last Thursday 
And then that seemed to flip a little bit of a switch, or maybe it was just their pride kicking in, remembering how poorly they had been beaten uh, and, and defeated in Yankee Stadium the, the last two years. Another factor, I guess, that we can get into, and you made reference to the rivalry and people want to know, you know, what happened to it? Where's that, uh, that, that sort of ill will that used to exist between the club, say, 20 years ago when you're talking about A-Rod and Jason Veritek and, and some of the stuff that came to the forefront back then? I don't know that we're ever going to bottle that up and experience that again, and we can maybe spend another show discussing why that rivalry isn't what it once was in terms of the on-field animosity that the teams have for one another. But I thought it was interesting that at the end of the sweep, Xander Bogarts went out of his way to note that the comments by Brett Gardner prior to the start of the series, in which Gardner said something to the effect of, we're glad Cora is back in their dugout. It'll make it even more fun to beat them. That was a none too subtle reference to Cora's role as bench coach with the 2017 Astros. The Yankees still believe that they got cheated out of a pennant and a chance to go to the World Series by the time-stealing scandal that was going on with the Astros, of which Cora was very much involved. But Bogart said they used that a little bit of as a rallying cry, and I thought that was instructive because it suggests, uh, you know, how much Cora means to these players and sort of how they're determined to have his back in this situation. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned why the rivalry isn't the same. The game has changed so much. You know, most of these players are are friends off the field. Uh, but anytime you have a situation like that that comes up where you take a snipe at another team or you take a snipe at a, a, an individual on that other team, you know, the rest of the guys are going to kind of rally around that. That the, the competitive juices still flow. And, you know, they used to call it billboard material. You know, someone would say something, they'd tape it up on the billboard and they'd say, hey, look what these guys are saying about us. You know, you don't really need that anymore, but it doesn't take much uh, to, to kind of get a little extra incentive. And, you know, when you talk about going into New York and playing the way they did, you, know, you point to what had happened over the last couple of seasons, you know, winning, you know, or losing 15 out of 17, talking about a 2019 team that wasn't very good and a 2020 team that wasn't a major league baseball team. So you almost expect those kind of numbers, but they've turned it around this year uh, and they walked right in there and, 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 and pretty much took it to them. And I've always been a guy that says, you know, you can be a victim or your, of your schedule or your schedule can really help you out. As you said, maybe you catch the Yankees when they're stumbling a little bit. And then maybe two weeks from now, you catch another hot team that isn't playing as well. Or then maybe a week from then, you, you play against a team that's historically terrible, but all of a sudden they get hot and, and you take it on the chin a little bit. So the schedule and the way it's set up can really either benefit you or, or, or hurt you along the season. And you know the thing that I really wanted to see was how well will this team play against other teams that are really good. And Houston is one of those. And they didn't play that well against them, but they did come back and, and just bounce the Yankees. Yeah, and, and, you know, we should point out that while the Red Sox lost the first three games of that series, they were in most of those. Um, it, it really was a matter of the offense scuffling for a few games. And I think you have to give some credit to the Astros and uh, pitching coach Brent Strom there and the pitching staff in general, because it looked like they had a real attack plan against that Red Sox lineup. 
and with Houston at Fenway this week for a three-game series, um, I think we'll be looking to see how well the Red Sox respond to that. What did they learn about how Houston approached that lineup, how they attacked them, what the game plan was, and can they make the necessary adjustments back in Fenway a week later? But I, I want to get back to the Yankees for a minute. Uh, as we record this, Steve, the Yankees are just two games over 500. I think they've lost something like nine of their last 12. They've been swept at home twice in the last 10 days. There's this feeling that, uh, you know, there's too much talent there for them to be shuttered in fourth place in the division. And yet when you look at how that team is constructed, it doesn't seem like it's been put together in the mold of great Yankee teams of the past. They've got almost no left-handed hitting other than Brett Gardner, who's clearly on the backside of his career and is hitting ninth and struggling to hit over 200. They're playing poor fundamental baseball. They're getting all kinds of outs on the bases. Um, you know, the offense is historically bad for the Yankees. You have to go back 40 and 50 years match some of the batting average and run production numbers and uh, batting average with runners in scoring position that we're seeing from the Yankees. Is it possible that we've overrated the Yankees? And I'm not suggesting that, you know, uh, in, in the second week of June, you can write them off, but is it possible we overrated how good that Yankee team can be? Yeah. I don't think they're a, a top of the division team, but you know, I mean, and they're proving that so far, but they're so one dimensional, all the things that you just mentioned. And of course they're an all or nothing team, but they don't hit the ball out of the park. They're not going to win games. And history has told us that you don't win championships with, with powerful offenses. You win it with pitching and defense and other aspects of the game. You know, you, you can live by the sword and die by the sword, but eventually when you go throughout the entire playoffs and the number of games you have to play, you're going to play too many games where you don't get that power. And they have no ability to manufacture a run. Um, and as you said, they've been so right-handed dominant for the last four, five, six years, and they've never addressed that issue. And, you know, I mean, that's why, that's why a guy like Evaldi comes in there and absolutely dominates the Yankees because a hard-throwing right-hander with a nasty slider, those guys can't touch him. Yeah, I mean, look, great Yankee teams of our lifetime have always been built on left-handed hitters and left-handed pitching. And as far as the rotation in the starting lineup goes, the Yankees don't have nearly enough of that. You look at Uber, you look at Herman, you look at Tyone, all right-handers in the rotation. Uh, you look at that lineup, we just said that Brett Gardner is really the only regular, semi-regular who's left-handed. He's at the end of his career, uh, doesn't have a whole lot left offensively. It, it really is amazing, you know, how they've gone against their past formulas for success in putting this team together, and maybe it's starting to catch up to them. Yeah, and, you know, I think we all know that teams go through ebbs and tides. You know, there's there's uh, it, it can be cyclical, and they're in a – a period of time where they invested most of their money, their big money in big time power hitters, guys like judge and Stanton. And, and when those guys aren't clicking, it's in trouble. Hey, I thought it was interesting and it's not unusual of course, but certainly the boo birds were out, you know, with Stanton popped up to right field, you know, and he got booed off the field in a situation where he could have done some damage. I mean, he's used to that now. He hasn't had really too many really successful seasons up there since they spent all the money on him. 
Uh, and Judge is, you know, I think he's more of a complete player. But, you know, when those two guys aren't getting it done, you know, you don't have much else around you uh, to help out. And, you know, a guy like LeMay, who's a fantastic player, is not having one of his best years. So, you know, uh, they're just they're too one dimensional for for my taste. And as you mentioned with the pitching, they don't have the horses that they used to have in, in that regard either. So you're talking about, you know, a lot of incompleteness throughout the lineup, whether you're talking about offense, defense or pitching. Yeah. And, and when you look at the payroll and the commitments they have going forward, Stanton is under contract and under control through 2027. This is year one of a LeMahieu six-year deal. They spread it out six years to lower the AAV and keep themselves out of the luxury tax area. But, you know, he's not looking like a guy that you want to commit to for five more seasons after this, as good as he's been in his first few years in, in Yankee stadium, including winning a batting title. Uh, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that DJ LeMahieu is done, but it certainly is not the start or, or the good start to a long-term extension that was given to him uh, over the winter. Um, let, let's shift back a little bit to the Red Sox here, Steve. And we discussed on last week's show, the never ending search for a leadoff option. It's clear now that it is not Kike Hernandez, who is in the throes of something like a two for 36 run right now that has gotten him demoted to the lower third of the order. They've tried Danny Santana at the top. That didn't work. Santana's not hitting. And on Monday, the first day back of, uh, of or the start of a week-long homestand, they gave a little bit of a try to Christian Arroyo, who came up in a huge way. Um, you know, is it possible that Arroyo, uh, through all the nagging injuries that he's battled through, not only in his this season, but really in his career, is it possible that Arroyo could claim two roles here? That is that of the everyday second baseman and maybe the leadoff hitter they've been looking for. Well, I think Alex Cora is, is really good. He's really good at a lot of things. Um, there's, there's some game management stuff and things that I question at times, but he's, he's very, very good at a lot of things managing a team. And one of them is kind of knowing who's hot and who's not. And, you know, he does a really good job of riding that horse as long as he, you know, can get productive productivity out of it and you know this came up last week when we talked and I don't even think we really had a royal conversation because of what you said we're not sure if he's going to be in the lineup every day or if they're even going to give him an opportunity to play every day when he is healthy but this was an an outstanding kind of an under the radar pickup by Bloom last year nobody cared about him you know nobody everyone was like who you know but it, when you looked at his past numbers and in the potential that he showed, I thought it was a, a pretty shrewd pickup. And this is a guy that if he's healthy can be a really productive player and why not at the top of the lineup? I mean, he, you, we don't care that much about speed or stealing bases. He's got enough speed to go first to third, that kind of a thing. And so yeah, I think he's a better option than what we've seen. Yeah. And, you know, I'd kind of like to see them um, maybe de-emphasize the role and reduce the playing time of someone like Marwin Gonzalez, who I think is a very valuable piece have on the club. But I think the first 10 weeks of the season have exposed him a little. Uh, yeah. He's one of the guys know, that can't get overexposed. 
yeah, you know, we, we've talked about uh, the, the sort of super utility role. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote this past weekend that while Heimblum did a lot of good things this past off season, and you can look at Hunter Renfro and you look at Garrett Richards and some other guys that they brought in that have really performed pretty well. But I think they're asking too much out of guys like Hernandez and Gonzalez and Santana by having them in the lineup almost every day, rather than guys that play, you know, three times a week based on matchups. When you play those guys six times a week, I think you find out why they haven't been everyday players before in their career. And I couldn't agree with you more. When you look at Gonzalez, uh, to me, anyway, he was the most valuable when he was playing with the Astros and and being a part-time guy. You know, he did some damage coming off the bench. He did damage playing three or four times a week. You know, you can overexpose a guy when you run him out there every day and, and his weaknesses really start to show. And, you know, I said this last week, and I think I've said it before, the same thing about Kike Hernandez. I, I never really thought he was an everyday guy. He's really good off the bench, occasionally bouncing around, spelling guys, playing different positions. He has that ability to do that. But being a guy that you run out there every day, I never saw it. Yeah, and, and he, he's probably it. closer to a guy that you can give, you know, 400, 425 at-bats to than Gonzalez is. I mean, that's more the workload he had with the Dodgers. And it's a different, obviously, it's a far different experience playing in the National League as one of those utility guys or super utility guys. You get double switched into a lot of games. There are pinch hitting opportunities that don't happen or come along in the American League. So I, I get a little bump up in his playing time, but expecting this guy to be a 600 at bat guy or a 550 at bat guy is, I, I think, probably asking too much. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, I, I thought that from the get go. And, you know, uh, I was a little surprised at, at the contract, the length and the money, um, you know, good for him. He performed well enough to, to open someone's eyes in the Red Sox organization and said, you know, here you go. Now, is Kike going to stay in the slump that he's in right now? No. I mean, he's still a good player. He, and as, a, as we've both said, you know, he's a valuable player on a team. But running out there every day, uh, <laughs> I won't go so far as to say what I used to say. Hey, if I'm your everyday second baseman, you're not a very good team. Uh, you know, you don't go that far. But there, there should, you should have a better option as an everyday player at a certain position. Earlier this week, Chris Sale rejoined the Red Sox. No, he's not ready to take a regular turn. He's nowhere close to that, in fact. But the fact that he is with the team, uh, throwing bullpens in front of uh, pitching coach Dave Bush and Alex Cora, having the medical staff get to look at him on a daily basis rather than sort of you know, being off to the corner and extended spring training in Fort Myers, uh, suggests that real progress is being made. He's now throwing all his pitches, including his slider. Uh, we, we watched him uh, uh, earlier this week with some long toss and then a bullpen. Uh, the expectation is that he would start throwing to hitters in live BP sessions before too long. He's going to be with them uh, maybe for the next week or two before um, getting cleared to start a rehab assignment. Um, the Red Sox, as we talked before we started, Steve, are, are being so nonspecific about a timetable for 
for sale. And, and I, I think there's a reason for that. I think they understand that the minute they say, well, he'll be with us, you know, he'll be ready after the all-star break. Or he'll be ready on August 1st. The minute he's not, then a panic sets in, sale feels some self-induced pressure to get back on the mound before he should. I understand keeping it very vague and not getting into specifics, but looking at the calendar, knowing what we know, what's kind of the best case scenario or, or, or more fittingly, what's the most realistic scenario for sale to rejoin well, whatever it is, they're going to have to hold him back because you know he wants on the mound and he will want to come back before they're willing to let him come back. You know, it's always been his nature. But there's so many things around the sales situation that are interesting. Having him around the ballpark is awesome because he has a great influence on that team. You know, his tenacity shows up every day, whether he's playing or not. He uh, he's he's a leader on that club. You know, he's, he hasn't always been the most friendly media guy. We know that does a great job of talking on the day he pitches the rest of the time, you know, tell you to go screw. But uh, this, you know, his influence on that club um, is immeasurable. Uh, and when he starts throwing uh, BP to live hitters, there's not one hitter on that team that wants to stand in there against him. It's no fun. It's not a day in a park. You don't want any piece of them. And, you know, just, just having him around the guys are great. I mean, if you said August 1st, I mean, this is a team that has always been extremely tight lipped, especially when it comes to medical issues. They're not going to tell you what they think half the time. They don't even tell you what the medical problem is. He's got an upper body issue or a lower body issue. It's like a and, hockey team. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And on top of which I will go so far as to say that they've lied to us in the past, flat out ball face lied when he was hurt in the first place. You know, he threw, uh, he threw down in spring training. He came out of it. They say he was great. Arm feels great. Arms awesome. Threw the ball great. And he did throw the ball great. A week later, he's having Tommy John. You know, so you, you can't, you, you're never really going to believe anything they say because they don't want to let information out there and they don't want to tell the truth. They just, it'll happen when it happens, basically. And they're not going to tell us anything. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I still think it's going to be a while when, when you think about the ramp up process to rebuilding arm strength and, you know, going out on a on a first rehab assignment in Greenville or, or uh, you know, Portland or wherever he ends up starting, uh, you know, it's two innings. And then five days later, it's three innings. And then five days after that, it's four innings. And it's 40 pitches, it's 60 pitches, it's 80 pitches. You know, you're looking at several weeks uh, to, to build up the necessary arm strength, and we're not even at that point now. So I think expecting him before August 1st is probably wishful thinking. But if he were to be there on August 1st, that would be the equivalent. And this is kind of a cliche now with guys coming back from injury. You'll, you'll hear people say, well, this is just like the best trade acquisition we can make, except it didn't cost us anything. And, and even though it is a cliche, I think it probably applies to sale. Other than Max Scherzer, what other starter might get moved at the deadline that could be as impactful as a guy like sale? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately it's been costing him about 30 million for the last year while he hasn't done anything, but <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It is sort of like making a big deal that you didn't have to make the deal to get, Hey, you know, the one thing, and I think you're absolutely right. He needs spring training. He's going to have to go through spring training right. before he can get on. The yeah. You're, you're, you're looking at like a six week 
you know, close to a six-week rebuild process, and he's not ready to start that yet. So, you know, the- yeah, the one area where I feel like it's he's headed in the right direction already is that he has been throwing, he is throwing, so there is a little bit of a build-up process, right? Even before he has to, you know, go into any type of game action. So there's there's some strength being built there as we speak but not necessarily in a spring training setting, but I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, a month to six weeks is probably, you know, right in that area minimum because that's what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to go through a spring training season before the regular season starts for him. Right. And there's no shortcuts to that. It's, it's gotta be adhered to and, and you gotta be patient as much as you'd like to have him back tomorrow. Uh, one last thing, Steve, we like to venture, uh, you know, take that 30,000 foot look at, the game, and I thought this week we would discuss the fact that owners have empowered umpires to start cracking down on the use of foreign substances on balls. We hear about the great spin rate of all these breaking balls and the stuff getting better and the velocity getting better, although I think this is less to do with velocity and more to do with action on breaking pitches. But Major League Baseball has decided to start taking this seriously. They're going to empower umpires to check pitchers coming into the game. You don't have to wait anymore for the other team to lodge a complaint. As a matter of routine, umpires are going to check guys when they come in. They're going to look at gloves, hats, uh, sleeves, the whole bet. I applaud the idea behind cleaning this up and getting rid of it. But what worries me is if you thought games were going too slow now, what's it going to be like when there is a pat down of every pitcher coming into every game? Yeah. I mean, you would hope that would happen during the commercial break or in between the innings somehow, but you know, they do make changes in, in the middle of innings and you know, I'm sure it's also going to have to, you know, guys are going to be more scrutinized if they have a reputation that they might, you know, do stuff like that. You know, uh, you know, guys, why, why don't you just be obvious and just slap a big thing of pine tar right on your neck? Like that guy from the Yankees. Who was that? Uh, Michael Pineda. Uh, was that? Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't trying to hide anything. He, he wasn't discreet. Uh, and then, and then, and then denied that he did it. That was the greatest part of it. But I'll tell you, it, it's, it's kind of a, when you talk about the spin rates and everything, it certainly makes sense. If, if guys are getting extra spin on their breaking ball and they're nastier because of it, you know, there's a fine line between going overboard and what I would say that most hitters, most guys at the plate, they don't really care if the pitcher has a little bit better grip on the ball because they, they'd rather that. The last thing they want is a slippery ball in the hand of a pitcher who's throwing it 100 miles an hour at you. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that comes into play a little bit early in the season and then maybe again in the postseason when you, you have that colder weather and it's 52 degrees and uh, you, you're, you're trying to, um, uh, you know, you're looking out for player safety so that pitchers do know where the ball is going. But it seems to me that we've gone too far in the other direction where – this is clearly, I mean, we're, it, it's, it was 95 degrees at Fenway yesterday. I think we're beyond the worried about getting a good grip in cold weather part of the schedule and calendar. And, and this is something that seems to get worse every year. Uh, you know, the, it, it can't be a coincidence that spin rate and action on breaking balls is at an all-time high. And we know that a lot of this stuff's going on. 
And for too long, I think teams had this, you know, it, it was like detente back in the 1980s, you know, well, uh, trust but verify. We, we, we know you're doing it, but we're also doing it. So we're going to keep our mouth shut. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's a good idea that baseball has kind of drawn this line in the sand. But I do worry about how crazy it's going to get on the field with, you know, we already saw it a couple of weeks ago and Joe West checked somebody in a Cardinals uniform. Uh, Mike Schilt, the, the, the manager, went crazy uh, telling Joe West that he had no right to do this. I mean, it, it, it could turn into the wild, wild west on the field for a few weeks. Yeah. Hey, but you know what? Uh, it, at the risk of slowing games down, like you talked about before, which is never a good thing, you might actually see an argument on the field, which we haven't seen forever. It never happens anymore because of replay. Yeah, that's true. I, I wouldn't mind a few of those. It, it livens up the game uh, as long as we're, uh, uh, it, it, as long as it's not tacking on an extra thirty minutes to games that are averaging three twenty and three twenty five. Uh, that's that's gonna the wrap up. For you. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Steve. That's the Red Sox for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just them, but they seem to be the leaders in that regard. Uh, that's gonna wrap up episode six of this is our effing podcast a red sox show with your co-hosts sean mcadam and steve lyons we ask as we always do that you rate and review the show wherever you uh, digest your podcasts and whatever platform you use to access them tell your fan uh, your friends especially your red sox fan friends about its existence and spread the word for us we would appreciate that we'll see you next week steve good talking to you as always Always a good time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 